0: actually, well, so most summers, we, uh, we have so many people traveling and students gone and so many things going on in that way that we usually take a break from whatever book we're preaching through, and we do uh, we'll preach the Psalms instead, and we call it Summer Psalms because we have no created creativity department of any sort. Um, this year, though, with COVID, did anyone realize when summer even began? Does anyone know? I mean, how many you even know what month we're in right now? Um, it was hard to know at, at all, and, and, and so this year, instead of getting the summer psalms, you're getting the summer psalm. One single psalm, just one. Psalm 51 is what it's going to be. And full disclosure, I have preached this before, but it was like five or six years ago. Um, not many of you could have even possibly been here. And I've always wanted to kind of rework it and preach through it again. And I thought, since I was a cabin leader at camp all week, this is the perfect time to not be starting from absolute scratch. Uh, on a sermon, and um, you wouldn't have wanted that from Luke based on the time I had available this week. Uh, so anyway, we're going to be in, in Psalm 51, and I kind of want to set this up because uh, like many of the Psalms, it, belie- it begins with this explanation of David wrote it after this historical event, something that happened, and, and we can look at the other scriptures to say, oh, here's the context of what's going on, and, and this is an important one to know what was going on in David's life. So we're going to begin by actually reading in 2 Samuel 12. So you might turn over there. We're going to read that in just a second. And then we're going to work our way through Psalm 51 verse by verse. Um, so here's the situation that's going on, though. The, uh, the army of Israel is at war fighting against the Ammonites. And kings at this time were expected, you go to war with your people. Actually, fight with them. I know that might seem weird to us today, but that's how it worked. Um, but David decided to go home. And so he's back in his, his palace, his, his big house. And one afternoon, he goes for a walk on his roof. Not a weird thing to do. And he sees off in the distance a woman named Bathsheba uh, who is bathing on her roof. And it sounds weird to us. Like, why would you do that? That was completely normal then. Uh, her neighbors would not have been able to see her. But because he is higher and looking down from a distance, he's actually able to see, to see this. So uh, we're also told at this point that she's very beautiful, and David asks, so who is that woman? Um, and he's told that's the wife of Uriah. In other words, David, she's married, just, just walk away from this, right? That's the information he's being told. But David doesn't walk away from it. Instead, he sends one of his servants, go get her and bring her to me. Uh, and they bring her and, and, uh, to him, and the scripture says he laid with her. Now, sometime later, Mesheba sent a message to David saying simply, I am pregnant. Uh, David doesn't does what so many of us try to do with our sin. He tries to cover it up. Uh, David calls Bathsheba's husband Uriah back from the, for the war, right? Saying, you know, go hang out with your wife and maybe everyone will think that's how you, she got pregnant uh, by her husband. But Uriah is this loyal soldier and it wasn't right for them to come back at this time. And so he, he refuses to go back to his home Uh, you know, stay with the soldiers, do what he's supposed to be doing. And so David's like, well, that didn't work. So he comes up with his other plan to cover his sin. And he gives this orders that he's going to send Uriah to the very front lines, right? Where just as expected, Uriah gets killed in the battle. uh, And then Bathsheba is now single, widowed, and he marries her. And she gives birth to his son, right? So that's the the situation at this point. Now, we're going to read 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12, 1 through 7 here. Because this is the time when when David is actually confronted by the prophet Nathan with this sin he's committed. And so understand that's what Nathan's talking about because it's going to sound a little weird to you as you're listening to it. Uh, And remember, David's been hiding this sin for some period of time, right? Uh, Nine months or so. Uh, And he probably believed he had gotten away with it by this time. It might not even be on his mind. So uh, let's read 2 Samuel beginning in verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ulam, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now, there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was so greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let us pray. Uh, God, we are outsiders looking in on the sin of our brother David. May we not do so with pride for which of us here is without sin. Lord, this morning, make us to feel our own sin, and, and would you show us this morning that your mercy is greater than our sin. Would you show us that the only real solution to guilt is forgiveness, and that real forgiveness is found only in your open arms of mercy and grace. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So we know all that, right, uh, because there's this pretext to Psalm 51. It's the first thing you see. So if you will, turn over to Psalm 51. We're going to be hitting it bit by bit rather than reading the whole thing at once, and I want you to have it where you can see it. Uh, The first thing we see is, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Uh, This is a song. I think one of the most shocking things about this is that it is a song to be sung congregationally by people. Uh, Because imagine, if you will, this morning, if Tim had stood up there and said, okay, let's stand we are going to sing together about that time that Pastor Brian committed the most horrendous sin of his life, right? Uh, hymn 234 or whatever it might be. I don't think I would like that at all. E- even if it had a catchy chorus, I don't think I would like it in any sense uh, of that. Because, you know, we, we prefer to hide our sin and we prefer other people not to know about our sin. We, we prefer it just to go under the radar, and we often think that we actually can hide it from God. You can't hide it from God. You can't hide your sin, right? You, you might be able to hide your pornography problem from your spouse. You might be able to keep your alcoholism from your family. Uh, you may be able to cover up your pride with some sense of false humility and no one will notice. And maybe even cover up one lie with another lie, right? Until you just get that rolling for a while. But in the end, the one who holds us accountable, that we're truly accountable to for our sin... He knows what you've done. We simply cannot hide our sin from God. And so I hope you feel the weight of your sin this morning in some aspect. And I I say that not to be mean or harsh, I I say that because I, I think God's mercy and, and God's grace becomes meaningless to us if, if we lose sight of our own depravity, if we lose sight of our own even just need of a Savior and forgiveness. And my, my hope then is that, that we'll feel the weight of our sin this morning, of our personal sin, right? Uh, w- whether it be common as, a, as just a complaining heart or if it be uh, as horrendous as what we see King David has done here. But I also want you just to remember that this, this psalm is for anyone who thinks that their sin is just too bad or that their sin is just too much or too repetitive to be forgiven because in this we see massive mercy that points us to the cross. So now remember when we, we see David in 2 Samuel, he, he's, he's still holding on to his sin, right, when he comes to the prophet David or the prophet uh, Nathan. But by the time that he writes Psalm 51, he has had this interaction with the prophet Nathan and the guy we see writing the psalm is so different. His heart is so different because God has broken his heart. Now we see a man who is absolutely convicted of his sin. A a man who gives absolutely no defense for why it was done, right? He doesn't deny it. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to hide it. It's just out there in the open. And and so here we see this, what we see is just absolutely beautiful because what we're seeing is, is the soul of a sinner who is hiding nothing from God anymore that is just absolutely bare before his maker, And he writes then, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Right, he could have tried to blame Bathsheba. We'd all reject it, I know, but he could have tried to blame Bathsheba. He, he, he could have also said, you know what, it's because I was so stressed, the war, and I came back, and everything was just a mess. Or he could have said, I was, I was just so tired, or I'd been drinking, or any number of other excuses he, he might have given. But like every truly broken person, David offers no excuse for a sin. None. None. And instead, he does go directly to the one who can grant ultimately, ultimate forgiveness. Now, Have no doubt though, right, that as we look at David's life, he lives on the other side of the cross, right before the cross, but he is a child of God who is trusting in the promise of God for a Savior. And and here when we see David, we're seeing him experience the agony then of this unconfessed sin before his God. And here we see a model for how we are to respond to sin in our own lives. Feel it. Let the guilt of your sin sink in. Don't wash it away, right? Don't, don't make little of it, but then go. Go to God and ask. Yes, even plead like we see, see David do here in verse 1, right? Have, have mercy on me, God. There, there's a desire there for it. And plead, not with the tone of someone who feels they deserve forgiveness, But with the confidence as a a child of God, believing, truly believing that that God will grant to you forgiveness that you don't deserve, all because of Christ. And then notice in the second phrase of verse 1, David says, uh, forgive me, not not because of who I am, God, but forgive me because of who you are, God. Do you notice that David in this passage here, this first part, uses three different words for his sin in verse 1? First he refers to it as transgressions right that which designates that's a, a rebellious action which is both intentional and willful right something he desired to do and did notice the s there there's more than one sin that he's talking about it's it's plural acknowledging i am a re, in rebellion against you god the second thing we see he mentions is iniquity which is a to bend or to twist to to stray from the right path, right? David took this this good God-given gift of sex and he twisted it into this terrible sin. And finally, we see the term we're most familiar with, sin, right? All by itself. There there it is, right? Uh, And this is to miss the target. He, He lied rather than tell the truth here. Rather than use his power for good, David used it for this selfish lust. Rather than preserving life, he took a life. And then in verses 3 through 5, David writes this, he says, "'For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment.' Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. See, the the, the overarching thing I I want you to see here, for us to see here, is is this need for this conviction of sin. And David says his sin is ever before him. This is not a simple acknowledgement that what he did was wrong. It's this vivid picture of how his sin has actually haunted him. In our lives, this is, this is often the difference between just generally saying, yeah, I'm a sinner, everyone's a sinner, we're sinners, right, as, as some basic true fact, and, and us being very aware, on the other hand, of, of confessing particular sins we have and, and knowing what an offense it is before God. You see, David understands that ultimately his, his sin is an offense against God, and so when David says in verse 4, right, against God only have I sinned, it's not that no one else was hurt. Certainly others were hurt, right? Uriah, not doing so well. Bathsheba, the baby, all these people were hurt by his sin. And and, he's hurting other, and while hurting other humans is terrible, the great horror of our sin is that it is, a, it is against our great and our mighty and our holy God. And so while in one sense it is expected that we sin. Right? For, for even David here makes reference in this verse 5, right? Saying that he was, he was born a sinner. And what are sinners going to do? Sinners are going to sin. However, the fact that we are born sinners does not lessen just how terrible sin is. And it does not lessen the fact that we are guilty before God who is holy, holy, holy. And then David, we see pleading for cleansing from his sin. Follow along in verse 7 here. He says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, I'd be willing to bet none of you have ever prayed, God, wash me with hyssop or purge me with hyssop, right? Because in general, we're not really sure what we'd be asking for. We don't even know what that would look like. Um, hyssop is just a plant. It's this leafy, shrubbery thing with small branches. Uh, he's making reference to ceremonial cleansing right here. Uh, in which case, an animal would be brought in and it would be sacrificed and there's blood. And this is where everything gets really weird when we talk about sacrifices. he take this blood and just stick it into the blood of this animal. And then you'd come before him and he'd like shake it on you, right? Uh, It's a weird way to get ceremonial clean, because you're really physically dirty at this point, covered in blood. Uh, But that's the way it was. Uh, It was also used during the Passover, right? Uh, uh, When the Israelites, according to God's direction, they'd kill the Passover lamb, and they took the hyssop and they dipped it into the blood of the lamb, and and then they spread it above the doorsteps. uh, And and that was so that the firstborn in, in the house would be protected when the angel of death came by. Uh, And then we we read this through the lens of Christ, right? It's so easy for us to see then this foreshadowing that that David is asking to be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. I'm not saying he knows it, but that's what's going on here. Uh, He's asking to be made white as snow is the way he puts it. Because David knows that God is able to make him cleaner than before. To make him perfectly clean before him. White as the whitest thing that we know about snow. In fact, when we moved from Texas to Kansas, one of my favorite things is snow for a whole lot of reasons. But one of them was uh, just every time that we, we see it, and boy, you're not going to see it today because it's hot. But every time you see just snow coating the ground, there's this reminder of, uh, of this Psalm 51 thinking, my my sins are as white as that snow. And it's so perfect at first, right? Uh, That's how it is for us. God in the gospel washes your sins away white as snow. And then in verse 8, we we see that forgiveness leads to rejoicing. That's also what the the strange phrase in the second half of verse 8 is about, where he says, Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Um, David's saying, God, your, your discipline has been painful. And I know it's come from you. But with your forgiveness, I am looking forward to healing. I am looking forward to restoration. I am looking forward to just joy returning to my life in a way that it has not been there for a while. Now, there's a guy named Mac Meter who wrote a song. We're going to sing it. It's our last song today. It's called Psalm 51, right? Not, he has a bad creative department as well. Um, and it focuses on that phrase. You'll, you'll notice as we sing it over and over again, you'll hear this. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I, I after first hearing the song, actually contacted him and asked him about the song. You know, why, why did this strange verse, like, resonate with you so much? And he said he was just going through a rough time in his life. He said, I was looking for someone to blame for my sorrow. And I'd exhausted my, my, myself in, in, in self-hate around this time, I ran across Psalm 51 and started reading it almost every day because verse 8 spoke into every fear and desire and pain I was experiencing. David was pleading for some joy and gladness to enter his life, and I wanted it to, that too. More than anything, just a little bit of hope. You see, in the, in the midst of, of discipline, David sought forgiveness and he sought restoration and, and he desired to just have that joy again to return to his heart. And that's what he's pleading for with that strange phrase. And then in verse 9, he, he again asks that God would blot out his sins, and this leads into verse 10, where, where David asks God to, to not only remove his sin, but to do an, an act work in, in his life as well at the same time. Now, look at verse 10 with me. You've got it open for you, right, before you. He says, uh, and, and make this our own prayer, right? It reads, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So the, the word create here I, I found very interesting. It's this, this Hebrew word uh, bara, B-A-R-A, bara, bara, whatever. It, here's what it means. It, it, well, it means exactly what's translated here, create, right? And, and I guess that's not real interesting when you get down to it, except for this little fact. The, this word bara is always and exclusively used for divine creation, Okay. So if you create something, you're like, look what I made, this painting I drew, mom. That's, that's not bara. You wouldn't use that word. You'd use a different one. Um, it, it's the word that we see, right? When God created the world and it's recounted in Genesis, the beginning chapters, the word there is bara. When God states that he created man for his glory in Isaiah 43, 7, the word there is bara. And here when David pleads for God to create in him a clean heart, it's bara. You see where I'm going with this? If you want to clean your clothes, you can wash them yourself, right? Or Some of you college guys, you can ask someone who knows how to use a washing machine to teach you. If you want to clean your body, you can hop in the shower and you can scrub yourself clean. That's something you can do. But if you want a clean heart, if that's what you desire, you cannot do it yourself. You must go to the only one who can create a clean heart for you. You must go to the Lord God Almighty. And the only way that you can go to God is through Jesus Christ. That's what we see when we see this through the lens of the New Testament. Now, verse 11 then is a verse that we read and we see really an immediate issue with, right? It says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Right? That's not what you want to hear. You mean that God might remove the Holy Spirit from us? Well, the Holy Spirit ministers in, a, in many different ways. The Scripture tells us a few things the Holy Spirit does. In uh, Romans eight twenty six. the Holy Spirit intercedes for us in prayer. Uh, the Holy Spirit leads us, Matthew 4, 1. The Holy Spirit gives life, John 6, 63. The Holy Spirit inspired the writers of the, of the scriptures, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The Holy Spirit illuminates the scriptures. That means uh, the Spirit makes us able to understand God's word, right? Psalm 119, 18 and Ephesians 1, 17 through 18. The Spirit brings about salvation in us, John 3, 7 through 7. He empowers the preaching of the Word, 1 Corinthians two two four, and 1 Thessalonians 2.13. The Spirit enables us to die to sin, Romans 8.13. Strengthens us, Ephesians 3.16. Seals our adoptions as sons of God, Romans 8.16. It gives spiritual gifts to the church, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, another ministry of the Holy Spirit, though, is this special anointing, this for a particular task that God has called someone to. Uh, this was true. We, we, we see it in Exodus 31, right? For the craftsmen who were to make the temple of God, the Holy Spirit indwells in them for that purpose. It's, it's true of Joshua in Numbers 27. It's uh, true of many of the judges, many of the prophets, and it's true of David. And what was David's particular task? To be a king. To lead the people of God at the point in history we're talking about Israel. That was his special role, to be the king. It was also uh, the particular task of the king before him, right? Before, uh, you remember what his name was? King Saul, right? God anointed King Saul to lead Israel. But after Saul fails to be faithful, we read in 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. That's David's fear. He's worried that he's failed so miserably that God might remove this Holy Spirit from. And so he's asking God for this special anointing of the Holy Spirit on him so that he continue to fulfill this task of leading Israel. Now let me be clear though before we go on. Old Testament believers, just like New Testament believers, were regenerated and born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit has regenerated someone, he will not remove that. God will complete what he has begun in you. Always. Believers in the Old Testament and believers in the New Testament could not and cannot lose their salvation. They cannot lose the Holy Spirit. The truth of the gospel is that God will never abandon his children. If God has bought you with the blood of Christ, you are his forever. And if you are his, then he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so then in verse 12 of our text, if you look down there, you you see then this, this prayer that, that honestly, I, I really do think more of us should be praying more often. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Just the knowledge that your sins are forgiven and you're redeemed in Christ. I think I- ironically here that he's saying restore to me the joy of, of your salvation my salvation is, is this, that... Um, Many see sin as the means to a good time, right? If you want joy, that's, that's the direction you go. However, David is so very aware of what sin has taken from him. And here he's saying that, that, that sin has taken joy from him. Amongst everything else, it's also just robbed him of joy in his life. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if many of us sitting here today are experiencing a lack of joy in our life because of some sin that's weighing over us, uh, maybe habitual sin, maybe something just big that's weighing over us that we don't feel the mercy of God that we don't understand the forgiveness that we have in Christ and I would encourage you then to understand that if your faith is in Christ and the sin that has come to your thoughts right now that too is forgiven and so go to God confess that sin repent of that sin and and plead with God to restore to you the the joy that you have in him that you had in him Others are are lacking joy in their life today because the stresses of life have just overshadowed the realities of their salvation. We worry so much about the things going on around us right now. You see, the, the reality that your sins have been forgiven should trump absolutely everything else in your life, everything. Right? Are you struggling to get along with someone right now? Are you frustrated with your job or uh, at being single or something that just annoys you? Or Is parenting difficult and just wearing you out, exhausting you? Are you, are you facing some fearful medical situation in your life? Are you, are you anxious because the world just seems like it's falling apart right now? You name it. And the truth that you are forgiven trumps all of that. And the only reason it stops doing that is because we stop focusing on Christ and the cross and the forgiveness that we have in the gospel. You see, Christians, more than anybody on this planet, even now, we we should just radiate with joy. And unfortunately, so many of us are angry and frustrated and depressed and anxious, right? But we should just radiate with joy because of this reality, right? Whatever you're going through right now, remind yourself with the gospel. Remind yourself that you are a child of God, that your sins are forgiven. Everything could just fall apart, right? You, you are loved by your creator. And so the, the world could literally crumble right now. And the truth of your salvation is still there. It cannot be taken. It's secure for the rest of eternity. What happens when we understand our, our place in the gospel then is what we see in verse thir- 13 here. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. you. You know what it's like to talk about things that we just find amazing? Amazing. You ever listen to people? I know you do because you listen to me talk about Texas and Chick-fil-A sauce and dumb things like that, right? But but anything someone just thinks amazing. You, you just hear the joy of what it is. And, and, and so truly knowing that our sin has been forgiven, right? This, this is the motivation that actually gives us boldness to tell others uh, about the forgiveness that we have received in Christ. It becomes easy to spit it out when it becomes real to us. And, and notice that it's It's tied closely to the next two verses, 14 and 15. If you got them before, you look at them with me. It says, Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Rescued people sing the praises of their rescuer. And listen, you don't have to know much of anything about theology or scripture to know. That through the gospel, you have been saved. Through Christ, you have been saved. And with just that basic knowledge, that basic information, you, you, you can open up your lips and share with someone else the, the way of salvation. You can point them to Christ. The last four verses here then are, are about worship. That's where this all comes around to, right? All this confession of sin, understanding the mercy of God, and then it pours out in worship. You, you remember, sacrifices were not about God needing dead animals. Um, God was perfectly capable of getting all the dead animals he wanted, uh, if that's what it was about, right? Sacrifices were about worship. It was a way to say, you know, God, you are so worthy, that here, you can have my finest lamb. I bring it to you because you are, you're just so wonderful. And, and so follow along as I read starting in verse 16, our last little section here. He says, For you will do not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem and then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The point is this, that God's not asking for just the actions of worship. Show up and do this, say this, you know, all that kind of stuff. What, What God desires is our heart in worship. That we come with a broken and contrite heart. That's what God desires. This is how we should approach God in worship with a broken spirit. Do you come to God just just empty-handed? God, I have nothing to offer you, but here I am because you're worthy of everything. You know, do we also come with a, a contrite heart? The, the dictionary defines contrite as, as someone who is filled with a sense of guilt and, and the desire for atonement, the desire for atonement, right? That's being contrite. We, we come boldly to God as the redeemed, but we also come with broken spirits and contrite hearts, knowing that, that God is so merciful to us. And so here's the deal. David does continue to face the consequences of this sin in his life. They don't just go away. Bathsheba still feeling the pain of it all. Her husband Uriah, he's still dead. Their child dies and the memory is a constant reminder to to David of his moral failure. But, But the payment of David's sin is covered on the cross of Christ. Even a sin as horrendous as what we see David commit here. That's also true of every single one of you who has faith in this realm. You, you might still feel the consequences of your sin you've committed. You, it may never go away, in fact, but let me assure you of this. Uh, the consequences that we all deserve ultimately, eternally for our sin is, is the wrath of God. But if your faith is in Jesus Christ, and, and thus He has given you a heart of repentance, then, then the wrath of God that we deserve has been poured out on Christ not you. That's what we see at the cross. Everything we see happen to Christ, right? That's what we deserve and that's what Christ gets. There's a sadness to that but there's also a rejoicing in that and so we rejoice in the mercy of God that has given you a future hope no matter what your past failures are, no matter what struggles or worries that you have as you sit here this morning. So we can rejoice in the Lord. Let us pray. God, Psalm, in Psalm 51, we have seen the depth of our sin, and we have seen the height of your mercy. Lord, if there is unconfessed sin that we've been hiding, we ask that you would convict us of it. We ask that you would give us a broken and contrite hearts, that you would draw us near to you, because near you is where we find forgiveness. Draw us to Christ where we can find restoration, where we can find renewed joy in this gift of life you've given. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray forever, or we pray, amen.